Did you know that dying trees transfer their resources to other plants before they perish? We'll discuss this and other interesting facts about botany in this episode of The Curious Professor. I'm Dr. B. Welcome to the Curious Professor podcast, where I take listeners on a journey of discovery to explore the people, places, artifacts, and natural wonders that spark my curiosity. In this episode of the Curious Professor podcast, we'll explore the secret life of plants with author Margaret Ann Spence. But first, a trivia question. Where is the world's southernmost tree located? I'll have the answer for you at the end of this episode. Now for the story behind the story. This is a segment in which I interview writers about the interesting things that inspired their work. In this episode, I'll be speaking with author Margaret Ann Spence. Margaret writes about women, the choices they make, and what happens next. She's an award-winning essayist and novelist, author of Lipstick on the Strawberry and Joyous Lies, which is her second novel published by the Wild Rose Press. Margaret and I are both members of the Alliance of Literary Writers, Authors, and Yabbering Scribes, which is a group of established fiction and nonfiction writers in the Phoenix area who support each other's work. When Margaret mentioned some of the fascinating research she did on the secret life of plants as she was writing her new novel, my curiosity was immediately piqued. I hope this interview with Margaret will spark your curiosity too. Welcome to the show, Margaret. It's great to have you here. It's lovely to be here, Karen. I'm really thrilled that you invited me to talk about my book and about plants. Thank you so much be for fun. being here. So what inspired you to make the main character in your new novel, Joyous Lies, a botanist? That is a great question. <laughs> I've always loved plants and I've been fascinated by, when I say I'm fascinated by the research, I'm not a scientist, but I am always looking around me. I took a class in 2007 at the Maricopa Extension of the University of Arizona. That's a Master Gardener class. I knew nothing about botany. I did the class because I wanted to learn how to garden in this climate because I just fairly recently moved to Arizona. And it's a fantastic class. I mean, we learned so much about botany. And then we have to volunteer a certain number of hours a year to keep up your, your certification. And at that time, the program had a garden tour, an annual garden tour. And I volunteered to, to do the publicity for that because I'm a writer, as you know. And so I got to see in the most amazing gardens, a lot of which were organic farm, farms here in Phoenix. It's amazing. And people were doing amazing things. And so that led me to my second character, Joanna, who is a old hippie, but she's actually an organic farmer. Oh, that's neat. Yes. And they, they use the principles of permaculture, which I also learned about here. Do you know what that is? No, I have no idea. I'm sure the listeners would be very interested to find out more about that. Uh, permaculture is a combination of permanent and agriculture. And it is actually really the basis of, is of layering. So you, you want to, you create um, a natural ecosystem by layering. You have the small plants at the bottom, the, the perennials, your annuals, and then you, over that shading that, 
plant in this climate, you want shrubs. And then over that, shading them, you want trees. And in this climate, it's all about shade and also water because water sort of produces itself through the transpiration of the leaves. So what I saw in Phoenix in this very dry desert were these amazing lush gardens. And there used to be one, oh, this is a little side. There used to be a guy called Mr. Singh. He had a contract with ASU to take all their leaf clippings and all their lawn clippings, and he put them as compost on this land that he rented on the reservation of Scottsdale Road and Thomas. And after a while, he started selling the compost that degraded down, and then he started to put it on the fields because he had too much of it. And then he started planting vegetables and fruit trees and it was amazing you could go there on saturday morning and buy this stuff it was wonderful that's really so neat. beautiful and you could see it from scottsdale road near thomas this have you ever seen it no uh, well it's gone now because he i get the reservation they didn't renew his contract or something but too many people perhaps there was no park, parking was very difficult but you drive along scottsdale road north and it's on the right hand side of the road and all of a sudden from the side of the road you see these trees these huge trees and this was just wonderful so of course they oxygenate the atmosphere and that helps us right i've just been so fascinated by that here in phoenix i never thought it would be possible my book's actually set in northern california but that's well that's because that's where the hippies were that's basically the inspiration i suppose how do you think the main character's profession impacts the story? It starts off where she's trying to prove that plants can hear and that they can communicate, which is very controversial. It's thought that possibly they can. She's struggling with that. It's a way out idea. So it impacts the story because, first of all, the idea is unusual and she's getting some pushback from the uh, faculty. She's a PhD student, but she's been taught to um, think out of the box because her grandparents did it, her mother did it, her aunt did it, everybody she knew did it. That's what she does. And it impacts the story, I suppose, because she's pushing a, the envelope, although she's a very quiet person and she's a very shy person. She doesn't really like to interact with people much. And so that's another reason that her profession sort of interacts with us. Her character fits with the story because she doesn't like confrontation. You know, she likes she likes to contemplate and then she finds this, I'm not going to give you a spoiler, but she finds this dramatic allegation that her mother was killed in a medical research lab. And she, she'd she never heard this and she's shocked and she has to investigate. And it gets much worse from there. And then she has to, her character has to change because in women's fiction, the whole thing is the woman has to have a profound change in the way she sees the world um, by the end of the story. And this is what happens to Maya when she becomes much more self-confident in herself at the end of the story and able to maybe go to a different path. And again, I'm not going to give you any more details than that. That's great. You, you've done a lot of research on plants and how they mm. communicate and their amazing mm -hmm. powers. Right. According to scientists, plants are capable of some very sophisticated exchanges of information. Can you mm -hmm. tell us a little bit about how plants communicate, what you found in your research? Sure. People thought they had no senses. Well, of course, that's obviously wrong because they have eyes. They don't have eyes. They, they perceive light because they eat light, right? They take it from the sun and convert the carbon dioxide and water into sugars. And there is a plant called the Aridopsis, which has 11 types of photoreceptors. So they have better vision or if the word's vision, I'm not sure, but they, the perception of light than human beings. Human beings only have four. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, that's amazing too. So in the in my first chapter, Mayel is trying to, well, she, she thinks she's proved 
that plants can hear the sound of a caterpillar munching nearby. And experimenters have done that experiment. Whether they're making noise is a different matter. That's that's a little bit out there. But what they have found is if they have these experimental plants and then they record and play the recording of the sound of a caterpillar munching, they can record the fact that these plants flood their leaves with chemicals to uh, ward off the predator. And furthermore, it's also been shown that they these chemicals can volatile they can become volatile in the air. And so other plants nearby of their same species seem to I word there's a word smell right. That it's it's like smelling it. They can they can perceive it and they too flood their own uh, leaves with chemicals to deter the predator. Yeah, uh, so that's one. I think that's two there. So they have a smell, they have a sense of light, they possibly have hearing. Some researchers believe they hear, but, and some some say they may even emit a sound. Although that's very controversial, but it's very high pitched, can't be heard by humans. Yeah, it was interesting in some of the reading that you shared with me that, and you're alluding to it here, that it seems like they're interacting with each other and helping each other to survive in whatever climate. In a very slow in. way. Yes, yeah. that's why we don't see it, but it, it's sort of makes sense doesn't it that's why you have a forest of the same trees they're they're all protecting their offspring there rather than having all these different trees together i mean of course there's some interaction with other trees oh they communicate too through their through their roots but not quite through their roots through the fungal networks that are on the roots and they those branches go from tree to tree to tree all through the forest absolutely amazing that is called the hyphae that is i just read a wonderful book about fungus this is called entangled life and it's by a man with a wonderful name of merlin sheldrake he's a researcher into fungi they basically are the underpinning of all life all life fungi a lichen Everything. They are the most basic things, and they're so hardy. It's incredible. Yeah, that is write, incredible. Uh, I might write a book about fungi next. Well, we'll have to see. Don't get me started. <laughs> no, I love that. Um, yeah. Were there other things that you learned about plants or trees that surprised or fascinated you? Well, yeah. I mean, the, the, the fact that people are really taking this seriously now and are doing a lot of research on it, you can imagine how difficult the research is. Part of it is just getting your head around it. And this is why I think um, I've written an article about this, which is going to be in um, Barbara Bose's books, Women, Women Writers, Women Books. It's called The Internet of Trees. And they have this, what they call the wood wide web now, this underpinning of these fungal networks that lie on their roots it was always there and people always knew it but until we had the internet they couldn't really get it you know it's such a, a a change in our thinking i mean i was i was born long before the internet you had to go to the library to research anything when someone told us about the internet they said we're going to be able to get your information from sitting at your desk just by typing in a search into a search engine was so what's a search engine what does that mean and the idea that you could actually communicate with someone across the world from your desk through a few keystrokes was just astonishing. And that was only 30 years ago, Karen. Yeah, I know. And that's it's amazing. A, that's amazing. And we're so dependent on it now. But you see, so many times in history, I think that people only become aware of something when something else jogs a recognition, you know? Right. It's amazing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. It's like the roots are acting as a neural network. Kind like of. An, humans well, they don't have. use the word neural, but a network. Absolutely yeah. a network. A network of information. And until we had the internet, I don't think people could grasp that. It's so hard because we are not plants 
and we don't have that way of operating. Well, we do now, but we didn't before. We had no way of doing it. We didn't know how to do it. And, and so when we did it, suddenly you see all these analogies, the wood wide web. Oh, yes, of course. Yeah, that's a great phrase, the wood wide web. I love that. Yeah, yeah I didn't make it up, but it's good, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's great. Um, yeah. In one of the articles that you shared with me, it says that the dying trees will move their resources into other trees before mm-hmm. their demise. I thought that was fascinating too. That's interesting too. And of course, we have known for a long time that some plants germinate only when the conditions are right right for them. There's a Mexican plant that lives in a very dry area like here and they, they protect the seeds within themselves until there's water and it's a better time to for them to be germinated. So they can be inside for years and that's a kind of protection too. Now, I'm not saying any of this is deliberate. No one's saying, yeah, or some people are saying it's intelligent, but that's really far-fetched. It's evolution. It's about surviving and making the next generation thrive. That's what all creatures do. And there's no reason why plants wouldn't be doing it too. Right. right? What, bacteria, do you know, bacteria do it. Viruses do it. You yeah, know? exactly. Which we're experiencing mm-hmm. right now with the pandemic. Right. Do you know the mechanism by which these trees and plants are able to do this? Not really. I'd have to research it. But again, I'm not a scientist. I just I'm going on the internet. I'm going on the, wood, on the, on the World Wide Web <laughs> to look at this to stuff. To look at stuff for the Wood Wide Web. Yeah. <laughs> yeah it, this but is such again a... it's evolution this has happened over millions of years certain yeah. trees i know in australia where i come from the eucalypts only germinate when they're by fire so you have to have fire so that's all the fires that people are so terrified of are actually natural and we have to learn to uh, live with it and control not control it you can't control it but you can you, if you use fire as a way of clearing the forest every so often um, you will stop a much bigger fire and you allow those trees to germinate and get new life new new trees the tagline for your book is if plants protect their young why can't human beings do the same this is such mm-hmm. an intriguing concept to me can you tell me more about how you came up with that and the ways in which plants protect their young well, it's not a true analogy, but plants, the fact that plants do protect the young is something that's just been recognized now. And so there's a woman, a Professor Suzanne Simard. She's been working in, in British Columbia and she's been observing how parent trees seem to protect their young in certain ways. Sometimes they grow in such a way as to allow the baby have more light. And she wrote an article which was in the New York Times, I think in um, November or December, called The Social Life of Trees. And I was so amazed because it sort of, it was right about what I was just talking about you know that article is very very interesting okay yeah um, i'll include a link to any articles that you send to me so if you want to send the social life of trees that would be great i'll include a link and so the other thing is that sometimes they um i'm not sure they really know how they do it but some plants release chemicals into the soil that prevent the growth of competing species and you've seen that with certain trees especially here saguaros grow and they don't have any competing plants nearby yes because they're, they're protecting that soil around them for the for their own babies and that's how you get forests of the same kind of tree it's not universal throughout the world but it, these particular trees do that especially when there's scarce resources so they're protecting their young now whether how that relates to the story um my character Mayel is faced with the she doesn't want to believe that her mother chose to do something that would get her killed because she would be left as an orphan. She didn't know her father, so she had her mother and her mother died when she was 10. And she didn't believe her mother would do that to her, so she believed that there was something else going on. She didn't do this thing that um, she was accused of doing. In the story, the commune brought up its children in a most unusual way. Not my old, because she was 
of the next generation, but the, the one of the generations of the hippies' actual children were brought up in a most peculiar way. Neglectful, really bad. And in fact, this actually did happen on a lot of the communes. And so not exactly what happened to these kids, but this kind of crazy behavior. I was wondering, what is the responsibility of parents of their children? Should they live? And this is actually something that's been obsessed with me for a long time. What obligation do parents have to follow their own ideals and their own beliefs if it means endangering, neglecting, or otherwise harming their children? So it's principles versus nurture. And it's a real question. And it's a question not only for people who are idealists and have unusual ideas. I think it's a question for the whole society because actually people are so consumed with ambition sometimes that they don't care for their children. And there's no mechanism in society to make that happen properly, really. It's all up to the individual. That's another topic, but it's part of it. It's always been something that's concerned me and I see it all the time. No, I think those are fantastic themes, particularly for women's fiction. And I think that a lot mm -hmm. of the listeners will be interested to read your book. Thank Incredible you. that, you know, you're mixing these types of, you know, women's issues and things that mothers deal with, along mm -hmm. with the the fascinating research that did on plants. So I know mm -hmm. there's quite a few people who are listeners of this podcast that are anxiously waiting to read your book. I know they're very oh, excited about nice it. Oh, that's nice to hear. <laughs> Good. Thank you, Karen. Is there anything else that you want to tell listeners about Joyous Lies? First of all, I hope it's a good read. I, I think people say it's a bit of a page turner, which is nice. Um, it's got great reviews, okay, one wonderful review so far, and some other nice little short reviews. It, it does seem to be a lot of interest in this book because of the subject matter. It's not just a romance. There's some romance in it. And it's not just about the hippies, although I'm fascinated by them, but it's also about, so that's sort of something that people believed in in the past, 50 years ago. And those ideals were great, that a lot of them. You know, they really, they hated the Vietnam War. They protested injustice. They wanted to live a life of love for all. So how can you do that? And does it, is it really possible? That's the other theme. And then the other thing was moving from these past and these older obsessions, I suppose you could say, to the future, to this 25-year-old PhD student who's trying to understand something that it's really hard to get your head around. And, and the other thing too, Karen, is that I often think when I think about the hippies and that generation, which is actually my generation, to you the truth, so many things that were really out there at the time, like the women's movement, civil rights, all kinds of things that we just take for granted today, they all came from that era. And kids, young people today couldn't imagine living in the kind of restrictions that women had to live under particularly you know you had to ask your husband to get it you had to get a credit card all kinds of things so I think that's another thing that these were ideas that were sometimes wrong people couldn't be as good as they wanted to be or tried to be so that's that and then we have this other new idea of trying to heal the earth because that's the next thing, isn't it? Don't you think, Karen? Absolutely. Climate change. Absolutely. Trying to make a better planet. And for that, we have to respect plants. We have to respect forests. We have to respect the Amazon. We have to stop this all this terrible destruction of it. Otherwise, you won't have any oxygen to breathe. I just see so many themes with what you're saying, the mm -hmm. polarity between greed and selfishness and doing it what you want versus mm -hmm. what's best for the next generation, what's best for the planet. And how do right. you balance those right. two things? 
exactly. And and yeah. almost coming full circle. Now you have the, your main character, who's the botanist, is a young person. And now yeah. we're looking toward the young people who are really the advocates now for doing things yeah. to help the environment and help, help the climate. That's true, Karen. That's a good point. I'm very hopeful. I'm actually very, very hopeful. I wrote this book. It took me couple of years, I think, or 18 months or something. And I already had it at the publisher in November of 19. She didn't get back to me. They don't, didn't accept it for a couple of months, but that's normal. But then we had the virus and then we had the lockdown. And did you feel this too? After about six weeks, the sky was so blue. There was no sound of traffic. We live near a main road and it's always terrible very quiet. The birds started coming back. They started singing. And I suddenly had this epiphany. I said, we can do this. This is not so terrible. We can do this. We can actually change the planet in a very short time if we all do it together. And this is the first time that the world has ever locked down together. It didn't take very long for the earth and for nature to regenerate and to rejuvenate itself. It was weeks, really, which was amazing. Absolutely. And so isn't that hopeful? Very. That really is hopeful. Oh, it's just marvelous. And then, oh, by the way, our GM is, not, is going to go to all electric cars in, what is it, 2035? Yeah, amazing. <laughs> amazing. amazing. I never thought amazing. I'd hear that. And yeah. that company's run by a woman, I should say. Good to know. Yeah, I didn't know that. Yeah. So there's a lot of hope. Uh, I'm an optimist, actually. And so I believe that um, we'll be okay. We just need to do it and we need to do it together. Yeah, that's going to be the key, coming together as a humanity and really solving these problems. Where can listeners find your work? It's on sale at Amazon. And then it's sold also at at Nook. You can get a a one at Barnes & Noble and iTunes and the Book Depository, and it'll go on to Kobo. When it comes out on 15th of February, they will have more uh, buy links, more sites where it can be bought. But uh, it's in print and in uh, ebook. If you like your Kindle or you like your Nook, you do an ebook. If you like your print book, you buy a print book. If anyone's listening has a book club, I'd love to talk to them virtually or maybe not in the future. I don't know. Hopefully we can get together in person before too long. I'd love to do that. And um, I'd love to do a book signing at a bookstore. I, oh, will be. Oh, actually, oh, the, it is available at Changing Hands. For those listeners who aren't familiar with Changing Hands, that is a premier bookstore in the Phoenix area. There's two locations within the right. Phoenix area, Changing Hands Bookstore. And they do orders online if you're not in Phoenix. Today? Oh, that's good to know. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, good. They will ship anywhere. So if right. you want to support independent bookstores, Changing Hands bookstore in the Phoenix area. So that's where you can buy the book. But more important, I hope you love it. And tell us where they can find you online. If you look up Margaret Ann Spence, that's A-N-N, my second name, you can find me on Facebook. So I'm on Twitter. I've just started Instagram. And I, I do have a website, www.margaretannspence.com. That is a little up, outdated at the moment, I'm afraid to say, because my webmaster, who I really love, has been very sick with COVID since Christmas. Oh my gosh. She has, it's been terrible. And she hasn't been able to do anything. And I can't get in there to change anything. So I haven't been able to post any of my blog posts. But I am doing a lot of Facebooking and uh, referring people to articles and things like that. I'm going to have a series. And then Women Writers, Women's Books, that's a wonderful site. It showcases authors, and I'm right. I have one article came out in October there on uh, why I wrote this book, and another one coming out shortly on the Internet of Trees. Awesome! Uh, That's fantastic. Yeah. Barbara Bose, the woman who runs that, uh, supports women fiction writers, and just get the word out. That's what I'm trying to do. Well, this has been wonderful. I really think you're doing a great thing, and I love I love your 
curious professor oh, uh, thank website. You. Isn't that great? Thank you so much. <laughs> thank you for being here. Thank you for being a guest on the Curious Professor podcast. We're so glad to have you here. Well, thank you. It's been wonderful. And now for the answer to this episode's trivia question. Where is the world's southernmost tree? A 42-year-old Magellan's beech tree is the world's southernmost tree. It grows in one of the windiest places on Earth, Cape Horn Island, which is located near the tip of South America. We'll end the show with something punny. What did the grape say when it was crushed? Nothing, but it did let out a little wine. Thank you for joining me for this episode of the Curious Professor podcast. If there's a person, place, artifact, or natural wonder that has sparked your curiosity and you'd like for me to feature it on the show, please let me know. My website is thecuriousprofessorpodcast.com. If you enjoyed the show, be sure to subscribe to the Curious Professor podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you'd like to become part of my community of curiosity seekers, be sure to visit my website, thecuriousprofessorpodcast.com, and join Dr. B's Hive. Until next time, always be learning and be curious with Dr. B.